Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Really excited for today's guest. He's been with the Brandon Bobcats since the beginning of the program in 2005. He took over the head coaching role in 2012, where he's led the squad to two Canada West Championships, a U Sports Bronze and a Silver Medal. He's also named U Sports Coach of the Year in the 18-19 season. Please welcome to the show, Grant Wilson. Grant, thanks for doing this, man. Hey, Josh. Thanks so much for having me. You know, I think so many people take the Brandon program for granted where we're just like, yeah, they're always competitive. They're always good. I had no idea the program only joined U Sports and CIS in 05. So take me to the beginning there. When did you hear this, the school wanted to add a program? Why were you interested in becoming a coach? Like uh, just for the volleyball fans out there, just let us know what, what started the Brandon program. For sure. Well, uh, it would have been the, the early 2000s, I want to say maybe about 2002, that uh, the men's hockey program at Brandon University folded. Um, and it was at that time that Canada West informed the, the university that if they wanted to stay in Canada West, they would have to add uh, a couple of teams um, to remain in the conference. And so they started to kind of do some research and it seemed to certainly at that time, there was a, a pretty good following of volleyball in the area. High school programs were pretty solid. And, um, there were some coaches obviously involved in, in rural Manitoba that were developing teams and feasibility wise, they, they thought volleyball was a good sport to add. You could add men's and women's volleyball for less the price of a hockey program. And uh, so kind of the wheels started turning there and two specific individuals, Bill Gadd and Daryl McCannell. Um, Daryl was a prof at Brown University and Bill was a phys ed teacher in Brandon that was also involved in coaching volleyball. They, they really, I would say, drove the bus, so to speak, and trying to get sponsors and get people involved that uh, wanted to support this program. And they started a club program and, you know, things eventually pursued to the point where 2005, uh, you officially entered Canada West with men's and women's volleyball. Yeah, that, that's so cool. So to jump back uh, one step previously and just talk about your background, uh, were you always a volleyball guy just doing some research for the show? I understood you coached baseball at a pretty good level. Uh, I think you wanted to be a school teacher by trade. So just let us know kind of what was your sport background growing up and did you always want to be a university coach? <laughs> uh, no, really had no plan of that at all. Honestly, I, I was actually recruited out of high school to play uh, basketball for the Brandon University Bobcats. And uh, they were the defending national champions at the time. And so I was walking into uh, a pretty high level of basketball. And uh, so at, at that time, um, legendary coach Hemmings suggested I either go play senior men's for a year or redshirt for a year and, and try again. Um, but at the same time, I thought oh, I either wanted to play or I didn't, I wasn't sure how much I wanted to commit to that. I was a multi-sport athlete. I played every sport, you know, as it was growing up, volleyball, basketball, hockey, baseball. Um, and my old high school coach had said, well, Hey, if you're not going to play basketball for, uh, BU, why don't you come back and help me coach the varsity boys volleyball team here? And so, yeah, I chose not to pursue the basketball, went back and uh, started helping my old coach at my high school, Neyland High School here in Brandon. And um, as, as they say, I guess the rest is history. And I, I just fell in love with doing it. But yeah, going into university, I, I honestly didn't really know what I wanted to do academically wise. I was thinking maybe athletic therapy or physiotherapy or something. But um, once I got into BU and started helping coach, I'm like, hey, this this coaching thing's pretty fun. Um, I think I might want to pursue it. So the best option obviously was 
getting an education degree and getting involved in teaching. And so the the plan really became, well, I want to be a high school phys ed teacher and, and a volleyball coach. And um, that was kind of the plan. And then obviously, uh, the more I got into it, the higher up I started to work and started to see other opportunities. And um, yeah, eventually came uh, this opportunity for BU. And um, yeah, it was uh, it was a bit, a bit of a winding road to get here. You know, coaching high school, coaching club, coaching provincial teams, and um, whatever opportunity I could could take. And pretty thankful to a lot of people that kind of allowed me to pursue those opportunities. And uh, the big one for me was obviously Russ Paddock. We we uh, met, I want to say, in about nineteen ninety seven. I was coaching here in Brandon. He was coaching in Winnipeg, and we were both coaching regional teams at that time. And uh, Russ asked me to help him coach a provincial team that summer. And unfortunately, I had already had commitments and couldn't do it. I'm like, I can't believe I'm turning down this former Olympian, somebody that I really looked up to, uh, to, to not coach. And I thought, boy, I may never get this opportunity again. But thankfully, the next summer came around and, and he asked me again to, to help with the provincial team. And uh, so we, we did that in 98. And uh, I continued with the provincial team for a couple of years. And then 2001, Russ uh, was named the head coach for the Canada Games for Manitoba and uh, promptly selected me as an assistant coach. And our journey continued there. And, you know, it was a pretty, pretty rewarding experience to, to coach at that level. And with somebody who had that kind of high level experience as a player and a coach. And um, that's kind of how it kind of led to the whole BU thing is in 2004, when they announced BU was going to have uh, men's volleyball, the first phone call I made was to Russ and like, hey, BU is getting a program. You need to apply. And uh, so he thought about it, hummed and hawed, and he applied. I applied. We both got shortlisted. And uh, in the end, they hired him, which was 100% the right decision because I was I was not ready for um that venture yet. And so Russ got hired and asked me to be his assistant. and. Um, I continued to work with Brown and school division and worked as his assistant for, for seven years until he became athletic director. And then I was fortunate enough to, to move into that head coaching opportunity. Wow. Yeah. Th- this is so cool to hear the behind the scenes. So, uh, yeah, I know you just mentioned a lot of the things that Russ accomplished there, but just speak to your friendship. Like, uh, I, I know your friends, but would you consider him like a mentor in a way or like a lot of the, the coaching conversations? I imagine when you spend that much time with somebody, it's not just in the gym, maybe you're at dinner or you're driving somewhere and you're always just talking volleyball, right? Like, is it fair to say that you guys were bouncing ideas off each other the whole time you were, you know, coaching together, whether it was regional team, provincial team, uh, university? Yeah, like I, I would say our our bond, so to speak, grew pretty quickly. We have a lot of things in common. And uh, we like a lot of things aside from volleyball, I would say in common. And we, we just had a, a pretty natural friendship that uh, formed over time. And that includes our families. Um, you know, we, we spend Christmas Day together, our family and their family. It's something we've done for years. And our, our sons are best friends. And yeah, he's my boss. But He's, he's certainly a mentor and and one of my best friends, and we've uh, had lots of conversations uh, from volleyball to baseball to hockey to farming to family to whatever you name it. And um, yeah, he's uh, he's certainly meant a lot uh, to me personally and professionally. And 
Um, we, we've obviously remained uh, close, close throughout time, regardless of our situation, whether we were coaching together, or not coaching together, he's the boss or, you know, whatever. It's just one of those things where we, we have perhaps a unique uh, relationship, I would say. And to your comment earlier that uh, in 05 there, you felt like maybe you weren't ready to dive in and be the head coach there. And I'm curious, I imagine there wasn't one moment that clicked, but over your years of being an assistant and still coaching, you know, club, provincial team, regional team, whatever levels you're at, uh, what were some things that changed that made you feel either more confident as a head coach or just more ready? Was it technical, tactical? Was it dealing with the student athletes? Was it dealing with young men? Like what were some things that you felt like you needed to get a little bit better at before you could be a head coach at the youth sports level? Well, I, I would say it was mostly related to, you know, being involved at, at a high level. You know, for me as as an athlete, I certainly played volleyball and um, played it in high school and then um, didn't play in university because there wasn't university volleyball here, but played in competitive senior men's. And, you know, that the competitive senior men's thing, I think, has changed over time. Like back then, it was, I would say... Uh, a, a pretty viable option if you were in an area where you didn't have university. You know, our team traveled and probably played six or seven tournaments a year and um, played in the provincial championships, played in the national championships. And so I certainly played against, you know, national team guys and university guys, but I didn't receive the coaching because as senior men, you just kind of run on the show yourself. And so you learn from watching and you learn from doing. And so I just felt like I needed more experience behind the scenes in terms of planning and recruiting and um, doing the things you need need to do to succeed with a team at a high level and obviously Russ had done that with his experiences playing with U of M and playing with the national team and so you know I picked his brain on everything and uh, just spending that time with him and learning from him and then obviously learning from other coaches too Um, you know Larry McKay at University of Winnipeg was my mentor coach during my NCCP uh, level um time and so i certainly formed a good friendship with larry and he's another guy that i've definitely picked his brain over the years and we've stayed close in touch over the years and so you know you work with some great people and you for me anyways i I just try to be a sponge whoever i'm around and gather information and try to find ways to improve and kind of through all those experiences you know after a few years uh you know, as an assistant at Brown University, I, I think I started to feel more comfortable. And Russ always gave me a ton of opportunity. You know, he he provided me with whether it was planning or um, whether it was doing certain skill things in practice or whatever it might be. He gave me a lot of responsibility. Uh, I wasn't just shagging balls or hitting balls. And so I think that was pretty beneficial for, for me, too. It just gave me the confidence and um, the ability to work with athletes at that level and um it's just something that grew over time now looking at the success the province of manitoba has it seems at their level whether it's club or canada games or university like have you ever spoke to larry or russ or uh, even throw garth pishke in that conversation like is there a certain pride that comes with being a university coach in the province of manitoba because it seems like every cycle there's players there's a competitive team whether it's your turn or manitoba's term or winnipeg's term that there's always going to be a battle like is that something that's ever brought up and talked about or is it just you guys all give back to the volleyball community in its own way and and that's why manitoba Manitoba has been so strong for so many years. Well, I, I don't know that we've really talked about it much, but we, we are certainly aware of it. And uh, I would say to me, that's just a credit to so many great coaches in our province. There's just so many great high school coaches, so many great club coaches uh, that develop these athletes and they get to a high level pretty quick. And, you know, when they're resent, 
uh, representing provincial team or Canada games team, you know, the expectation from Manitoba is to be on the podium and to be one of the top teams. And I think that's been instilled over time by so many, so many great coaches uh, that are out there and, you know, Larry and Garth, now Lupo, myself, we have certainly reaped uh, the benefits of that. Now, looking uh, closely at, at 2012, kind of when you took over the the first chair in there and just the program building, um, how cool is it to look back? I know you're still in it, but just looking at some of these rosters, like uh, how cool is it to look back and see like the difference between a Jeremy Davies in first year and like what he's able to accomplish as a pro. And now I think he's an educator. Like when you look back at all the things you've accomplished, I'm sure the medals and results and everything's cool, but how cool is it to see like an 18 year old turn into like a very functional grown adult? And Jeremy's a great guy we've had on the show that just comes to mind where I'm looking at these rosters. Like that's gotta be a pretty cool feeling. Just all the lives you've touched, right? Yeah, 100%. No, it's, uh, we've always referred to uh, our, our program as the Bobcat family, and, and that's the way I see it. Those, those guys that uh, have been here and poured their heart and soul into our program, uh, you know, we stay in touch. We're in contact regularly, and uh, Jeremy is one of those guys for sure. Just uh, had some conversations with him a couple of weeks ago, and, you know, yeah, he's, he's doing great teaching, coaching, um, forming his own family. And it's, it's just tremendous to see. And we, we, you know, we've got quite a few of our alumni now that are working. Some of them are still coaching or involved in the sport, but lots of them aren't. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's great to hear from them, whether it's a phone call, text message, email with updates of, you know, kids being born or whatever family experiences they're going through. And yeah, there's, yeah, I, I couldn't be more proud of all those guys and, and love staying in touch with them. And was there a point when you look back on the program that uh, it wasn't just happy to have a program or you weren't being treated as an expansion team? Like, how long do you think it takes a program to really take off and be comfortable? Because obviously, uh, I think you earned a number one seed in the country. I think it was around 2018. But man, a lot must have happened between then and 2005. So I'm curious, was there a feeling of like, uh, we're an expansion team, it's going to take a few years to figure it out? Or do you guys feel like you were going for it as soon as the club was added to the, the university there? Yeah, it, it took a few years. Uh, you know, we took our lumps those first couple of years. Um, but I, I would say it was uh, really when when the Australian connection arrived here at Brandon University that, that things changed. Um, the year that uh, Paul Sanderson, Luke Reynolds and Cam Blewett arrived on campus, uh, it was it was a game changer. And uh, they stepped into our program and uh, brought our play to our high level and brought our volleyball IQ to a higher level. and kind of raised awareness in terms of recruiting and um, you know, it wasn't long all of a sudden with, with those guys at the core, we were playing in the national final. So I think it's uh, yeah, it's one of those things where both Russ and I are extremely competitive and, and we felt like we could get the program to a, to a high level as, as quick as possible. But that, to me, it was, it was that kind of Australian moment, I would say that uh, put us over the top and we, we felt like we were in the mix. And who who deserves credit for that connection? Because it, it is a it is a little comical in the volleyball community that uh, as Canadians we think of Northern Manitoba, and we might have some opinions, but I think everyone agrees that it might be cold. And then you get some Australians to commit, you get some New Zealands to commit. Uh, you've had a couple Germans over the years. Like, how are you getting so many international students to be like, yeah, I want to go live in Northern Manitoba in February? <laughs> well, we don't show them any pictures. <laughs> That's for sure. Um, but yeah, I, 
well, back to the Australian connection, it was 100% Russ. Um, Cam Blewett had sent an email to Russ and said, hey, I'm interested in, in coming to Canada to play post-secondary volleyball, go to university. Um, and Russ watched the video and he's like, yeah, this libero is pretty good. But there is a left side in this video that's lights out good. And so emailed him back, said, yeah, we're interested. But uh, what about number five or whatever number Paul had in the video? That kid looks pretty good too. Oh, well, that's one of my best friends. He's interested too. And uh, as luck would have it, conversations continued. And then Luke Reynolds joined the mix as well. And um, the three of them came over. And we have obviously remained uh, in close contact with with people in Australia, starting from those connections and the whole AIS connection. And um, yeah, we've We've been fortunate to uh, be able to really sell, I would say, the, the things that are positive to Brandon and Brandon University um, to people internationally. And because those early international student athletes had such positive experiences here, uh, they really sell it for us. And uh, it's uh, it's paid dividends. We, we know we maybe don't have the the highest level of athletes here in our backyard in Brandon on, on most years. So we have to go elsewhere. And um, we've been fortunate enough to, to use that international pipeline. Now, what were some of your first impressions when you do see a Paul Sanderson in your gym? Cause you, you've coached a lot of special players, but just looking at the awards, just remember seeing him play, it, he had to be a little bit different, right? And I'm wondering, does that happen at first glance or does he earn that reputation over time? First glance. Yeah. Uh, he was special from the minute he walked into the gym, just, uh, a level of intensity that was unmatched, a level of physicality that was unmatched. Um, he could do things that, you know, most guys couldn't. And, uh, I, for me, the one moment Russ and I have joked about it and we've, we've talked about it over the years that never forget, you know, back in the old school days, it was pretty common for Russ or I to, to, give what we would call as a one-on-one -on -one, as a disciplinary uh, drill. So, you know, somebody messed up off the court or somebody did something we didn't like, we would get them on the court one-on-one -on -one and blast balls at them and make them chase balls. And I, I would say most players would last 30 seconds to 45 seconds at the most. And then they were looking for a garbage can. So uh, Paul Sanderson, I never forget was put in a one-on-one -on -one situation and Russ was blasting balls and making him chase balls. And it was about two and a half minutes. And he looked at me and goes, you're in, uh, cause he was out of gas. And so I went in for the next two and a half minutes. And so we, we went at Paul for, for five minutes. Um, and when that was done, he walked over, took two squirts out of his water ball and he was the first guy in line for a hitting warm up. Like it was phenomenal. I have just never seen anything like that uh, before him or after him. Um, he, he was an absolute beast. Wow. Wow. And I think another thing that Brandon deserves credit for that might not be as obvious on the surface is uh, you guys do well getting some CCAA transfers. And one name being an Ontario guy that caught my eye was uh, John Sloan went there. And the reason John's name stands out to me is I remember seeing him on a Canada Games roster. And I asked Shane White, like, who's this cat? I don't think I know the name. And he goes, man, this guy went from being not very good to really good, really fast and was just a workhorse. But uh, I'm curious with John and some other athletes you found, uh, are, is that just good communication with the CCAA coaches? Or are they looking to pursue university? and Brandon because of school reasons like how do you find some transfers who are already in Canada that might have been overlooked the first time to play university that always seem to find a home with the Bobcats 
Yeah, I, I would say there's usually some type of connection. Um, you know, we do have coaches reach out, say, you know, what are you looking for next year? I've got this guy that might be a good fit for your program, so to speak. And, you know, you rely on on that type of communication. Um, with, with the connection to Algonquin, we, we had Sloney and Dan Ashfield come here. And um, I think if I remember correctly how it worked, we, we were actually at uh, a tournament down in Florida, the one Dave Preston from McMaster used to run. And Algonquin just happened to be down there that particular um, Christmas break as well. And that's where the conversation started. Um, the that those guys were interested and they, they eventually uh, decided to pursue coming to Brandon and yeah, played a big, big role in our team. And unfortunately that uh, year when we lost in the national final, Sloney didn't really get to play much. He was coming back from a broken scaphoid and missed the majority of the second half of the season. We could only use him as a little bit of a sub at times at the national championship. And it's one of those moments where, man, what would have happened if you'd have been healthy? You never know. But uh, yeah, he's uh, he played a big part when he was here. Great, uh, great personality too. Just a great human being. And uh now doing well, kind of in the Ottawa area in the banking industry, and uh, life has certainly moved on for him in, in a positive way. And speaking to some other youth sports coaches, something I'd like to give you credit is just a commitment to a philosophy that it, it seems like, yes, you recruit from Australia, you recruit from college, you get some Toba guys, you get Alberta, you get SAS, but there seems to be a commitment to a system where it's not just plug and play and you might have a good player that changes the system here. Like there is a bit of a brand of Brandon Volleyball. So how have you guys committed to that where recruiting is really hard and it's re- really hard for everyone in new sports, but how do you keep to find to like find the right players that are going to fit your system and kind of grow up through the program and really contribute? That's a great question. Like, honestly, I, to me, recruiting is by far the hardest part of the job. Um, and uh, in all honesty, I don't think I'm very good at it. I think I could be much better, but it's just the way my personality is. I tend to be a little more shy, withdrawn. I, I'm not one of those guys that I'm not a car salesman. I just can't go up and start talking to people and convince them that uh, BU is the place to go. And honestly, I've always kind of had the philosophy that I want student athletes that want to come to Brandon. And so typically I recruit people that are contacting me that, Hey, Grant, I want to, on an opportunity at BU, I'd like to come to Brandon. I've seen what you guys do. I like what you do. I'd like to experience that. And I, I would say typically that's how most of the recruiting for us happens. I, I'm not going out there twisting too many arms and convincing too many people that they should come to Brandon. And I've kind of gone with that philosophy that, you know, if we can find people that want to come here, we can get them to buy into what we're selling. And um, I'd say for the most part, we've been pretty fortunate to do that. And we maybe don't always get what I would call the the A plus level recruits, but if we can get close to that, we can get the A minus or the B plus guys and get them coming in here that really want to buy into what we're doing. Um, I, I think it's it's allowed us to stay competitive and it's allowed us to to compete with the best teams in the country. And just to follow the timeline there, the other player who's earned a player of the year uh, award through Brandon, uh, Elliot Viles, what was your first impression of seeing that Australian guy in the gym? Because I imagine these Australians you're seeing on video and you're, you're speaking to coaches and you might have a good idea. But when you see them in person, like what kind of stood out in your mind when you saw Elliot play? Yeah, well, it's funny you talk about Elliot. It's his birthday today. So uh, happy <laughs> birthday, Elliot. I, I did send him a message. Uh, yeah, Elliot stood out, um, mainly just because of his athleticism. Like he walked in and, 
he could just literally full, he could be wearing a suit and dunk a basketball without any footwork. He could just stand there and fly. Uh, he's just a kid that just really stood out athletically. It stood out in his recruit video. I still remember watching his video ball. Wow, this kid is unbelievable with his ability to jump and do things that most people can't. And um, he maybe didn't have the physicality that somebody like uh, Sando had, um, but he certainly had this natural athleticism that allowed him to play the game at a very, very high level. And uh, his his ability to impact the game could be in so many different ways. His serve, he had to have one of the best float serves I've ever seen. And partly because he probably touched the ball at such a high angle, he was you know hitting the ball down into the court, and uh, it just put so many teams in trouble. Um, and my one of my favorite Elliot Vile stories, the one time we were in the playoffs playing uh, out at UBC, we were down two sets to one. Um, and we were losing 24, 16 and Elliot probably went back and served 10 float serves in a row to have us come back and win the game. And that just never happens at the U sports level. And to me, that's, that's just because that's how Elliot Biles was. He could, he could do things that other people couldn't. Wow. Wow. And, uh, as we progress through your career, I'm curious, what is like the, the team message? Like, do you like to redo it every year? Uh, is it tempting to do it when you kind of know you have the pieces? Like the, the year that stands out to me would be that 2018 season and you earn the number one ranking and obviously win the Canada West. Like, could you sense something was different or were you just going business as usual, kind of building the team, going through your, your preseason plan, regular season plan? Like, uh, how do you like to, as a coach, approach each season? Is, is there a lot of overlap or do you like to treat it like it's on its own? I would say we're pretty consistent with uh, how we treat things. You know, it's, uh, it's one of those things where at the start of the year, we sit down as, as a team and, you know, kind of talk about what, what some of the individual goals are, what, what our team goals are, um, what's realistic. Um, but that particular team in 2018, 19, um, it, we felt as a staff anyways, that it had the ability to be special one, because we had the physical pieces, you know, we had, um, three tremendous outside hitters with Biles, um, Robin Baghdadi, and Seth Friesen. Um, we had an experienced setter in Reese Dixon. We had a really stable libero in Brady Nault. And we had two great blocking middles uh, with Mason Metcalf and James Weir, who's uh, still playing the game for Team Australia and playing professionally overseas. And it, it was just a, a special group. And to add to that, um, it, we had a tremendous setback previous year. You know, we, we went in with high hopes um, in the 2017-2018 year, got into the playoffs, uh, playing Larry's UW Westman, won 3-0 the first night. We're up 2-0 the next night, and I think we were up 22-20 in the, in the third set. So we're three points away from sweeping them out of the gym and out of the playoffs, and a switch hit. I still, you know, it's hard to figure out, but we ended up losing that set, losing the match, and then losing the next day three to one. And so we had a team that felt, you know, had the ability to go all the way. And all of a sudden we were knocked out in the first round of the playoffs. And um, those guys, when they came back in the fall of 2018, had a pretty big chip on their shoulder and they were pretty motivated to not let that happen again. Um, and so, you know, that's, all the pieces kind of fell into place, so to speak, and and we had a, you know, uh, a year to remember in terms of our program success. Now, goal setting, I think, is a big challenge for coaches of any level. So, when you say realistic, 
how do you kind of like stretch your team and make sure we're, we're working towards something, but like not, not overdoing it. Cause not every team can win a national championship, but when you do have that team or you are going to earn like that number one seed, uh, what is the messaging to try to get straight, like connected to the goal that we still have work to do versus like, Oh, we're so good. Like, and maybe get distracted by the accomplishments. Yeah. Well, for me, it's always, I always tell the guys, you know, we're focused on the process, not the end result. And it's the process that makes you better. And you're going to have ups, you're going to have downs. Um, it's pretty rare to go through a undefeated situation, uh, for a season. You, you're going to have to be able to deal with adversity. And, um, in Canada West, you know, there's, there's just, you can't take a night off. You could be playing the last place team and you're going to lose if you don't bring your A game. And so I think that's really what has helped not just our team, but certainly the teams in Canada West succeeds. There's just a level of competition that drives everybody to try to find ways to be better constantly, because if you don't, uh, you're going to lose. And, um, with that in mind, people have to be realistic with their own kind of development. You know, it's, it's, it's one of those things. It's a bit of a learning process for, for young student athletes to figure out what's realistic for them. Um, but I think they learn from what they hear from the coaches. They learn from the veteran guys and um, they, they set some goals that they attempt to achieve. And we revisit those at times and talk about if, if they need to be adjusted or, you know, is it too easy? Is it too difficult? Um, and really, really just try to stay focused on that process and, and the end results will take care of themselves. And with that 18, 19 season, is that one of the funnest matches you've ever been a part of that final hosting it at home versus a, a pretty stacked Trinity team? It goes five in front of a capacity crowd. Like when you look back, is that like one of the coolest moments that you'll never forget? Yeah, 100%. I, I would say that at least in my U sports experience, the, the, three games that stand out for for me would have been our our first appearance in a national final when russ was still the head coach we played trinity in trinity um and same thing so it was capacity crowd but it was uh a crowd that was certainly cheering against us and uh a pretty crazy environment and then the the next one would have been my first year as head coach um when we played laval in the national semifinal in laval and so it was uh, same thing. It was a crazy, crazy environment. It was sold out over 3000 people in there and they had to stop the game at one point because our players were getting laser pointers shone in their eyes. And it was just a really unique situation, but one that just, you know, was pretty exciting to be a part of. And then yeah, top of the chart, obviously playing at home in front of uh, a sold out building um playing against a great team and to to get the end result that we did and you know the fans rushed the court afterwards and it was uh, it was a pretty special moment not just for our team but for our entire community as as we do have a tremendous community that supports us through uh ups and downs and uh our our crowds are you know top of the country and just to touch on your point there of, of how challenging and difficult the canada west can be i'm looking at that 18 19 season uh you play Montreal in the first round and you take them 3-0, but then you play an absolute slugfest against Alberta and beat them in five. And then you drop it to Trinity in the final. So just speaking of your conference, I know the back-to-back schedule must be gnarly on its own that you can play the team, you know, Friday and they have a totally different game plan Saturday. But what's it like, you know, winning your conference in the playoffs and then still going to nationals, having to battle these guys? Like, it just seems like just because somebody might be like two and all against a team, that's no favor. Or even your comment that, you know, if you don't show up, any team in the can West can beat the other team. So 
is that something exciting or does it get like a little fatiguing after a point where it's just like, oh, we got to play these guys again? Like it doesn't seem like past results are really an indicator for the Canada West. Like you can win Canada West and not win nationals and another Canada West team jumps in there like like this year with Trinity and Alberta. So I'm just curious as a guy who's in it, just talk about the strength of your conference and what that means to always be ready and always kind of battle these rivals. Uh, well, we refer to it as the Canada West grind because it is an absolute grind. Um, travel's tough. You know, we're flying across the country and changing two hours of time zone and playing teams that are, you know, national favorites every year. And it's, it's a challenging, challenging schedule. And uh, kids are trying to study on the plane or on the bus or in the hotel. And, um, you know, people think, oh, you're in Canada West, you get to see all these great cities. I'm like, you know what? We see the airport, we see the hotel, we see the gym and, and maybe a couple of restaurants. Like it, it's certainly not a vacation or, um, time to kind of tour around and sightsee it's it's a pretty focused time and um trying to find out uh ways to better yourself as a team and try to plan and scout against some extremely tough opponents is is a challenge and to me i i really think that's what drives our conference to be as good as it is it's just there's so many great coaches, so many great teams, and you're just constantly um, trying to prepare and find ways to make yourself better. Because if you don't, as I say, teams are going to leapfrog over you. And it, it really doesn't matter what place you finish in Canada West. If you get into the playoffs, you have a legitimate chance of, of moving on. You know, and, and well, my first year as head coach, when when we won Canada West, we were the sixth seed. You know, we we had to fight our way through a first round playoff uh, on the road at U of S. And then we had to go on the road for the final four to beat Alberta and Trinity. And uh, we were the sixth seed. And I don't know how many six seeds in other conference are, are going to find themselves in that situation. It's, it's, you know, it's rare. And uh, to me, that's just the reality of Canada West that there's extremely talented teams from top to bottom. And um, that's, that's really what pushes everybody to be better. And I like how you mentioned just the travel schedule and time zones and everything like that. So when you finally do get an off season and you survive the grind, that is the Canada West. Why was it so important for you to be a part of the team Canada program? Cause you've coached at FISU, uh, you've been part of the next gen program. So uh, how are you convincing your family? Hey, I know I, I got this gnarly job and I've just traveled all over Canada West, but I'm going to go to Gatineau and work again in the summer. Like uh, why is it so important for you to keep like stretching your education and your expertise, but also just like, when you get free time, like I said, you still want to be in the gym and coaching other guys. Yeah, well, uh, I don't have to convince my wife, which is a great thing. She's uh, my number one supporter and has always, um, you know, backed me on my uh, interest to try to pursue professional development. Um, and so I'm pretty thankful for that. And uh, yeah, for me, I just feel like, I want to learn more. I, there's just so much to learn about volleyball and I've maybe been coaching for 30 plus years, but to me, I, I don't know as much as I want to know. So the ability to work with other coaches, to work with high level athletes, um, experience some of those things so that then I can bring that back to our program to make myself a better coach, to make our team a better program. Um, that's always the goal. I'm just always trying to find ways to, to get better and to help our program get better. And, um, those national team opportunities were 100% beneficial for, for those things for me and our program and have enjoyed, um, uh, and 
been lucky enough to, to be a part of it. And just to add one more layer that uh, you and I were just chatting before the show, and I understand you're still coaching club. And I mean, that can be a bit of a long season and obviously overlaps a lot with what you do in youth sports. But uh, again, why is it so important for you to be in the gym and coaching some youth athletes and kind of giving back to the sport that way, but also, you know, stretching your own coaching ability and challenging in different ways? Yeah, for sure. Well, I've, uh, yeah, I've been coaching clubs since early 2000. And to me, it's just important to continue to work at the grassroots level and to try to develop athletes and kind of work them up the, the different levels to hopefully at some point allow them the opportunity to potentially play post-secondary volleyball, whether it's for us at, at BU or somewhere else. And um, to me, it's it's just once again, a, a good reminder too of some of the basics that uh, need to be focused on as a coach and, and for those athletes. And, uh, so yeah, this year I'm coaching a 15 U team and, and really enjoying it's, it's a really good group of kids and good group of parents. And, um, they've, they've been uh, a lot of fun to work with and it can be a challenge certainly during the university season when, you know, we're on the road coming back from BC and leaving, you know, the Abbotsford airport at four in the morning and, and getting into Brandon at one and going straight to a club practice at two thirty or three, that, it can be a grind for sure. Um, but we also, you know, have people helping out like our, our entire team is involved in, in coaching club, which is something I'm extremely proud of. Uh, every, every player on our, our roster was helping coach at some level this year. And we also have some community people involved that, uh, that help. And so, you know, there are days where I, I maybe can't be there, but uh, I've got an assistant coach who's a, a teacher here in town and she can uh, take the reins when I'm not there and does a great job with that. And so it takes a little bit of pressure off, but um, yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. So yeah, this weekend we just had our provincial championships and played four matches yesterday and got home late at night so it was a little bit groggy this morning but uh it's, it's all for the right reasons and and i still thoroughly enjoy it and what advice would you give to a coach working with different levels because uh i'm just smiling at myself here thinking you're game planning for canada west teams and you're probably thinking how you're going to stop a 30 overload and a pipe coming through really fast or this this rotation and spin servers and then you go to a 50 new gym where you're probably trying to perfect like or perfect excuse me like a high ball offense and how are we going to transition and little things where sometimes I think in club, you're more focused on what we're doing on our side of the net where in new sports, you're worried about everything. So I'm wondering, have you had to change your own expectations in preparation or do you just enjoy the challenge of working with different athletes of different levels? Yeah. I mean, it can be a challenge for sure, but I think it's knowing what hat you're wearing on what day and and you're 100% correct by saying, you know, at, at the U sport level, you're, kind of focused on everything. And a lot of time you're focused on the other side of the net. Whereas with, with club for me personally, uh, it's almost like I'm not even sure who's on the other side of the net. I'm paying attention to what we're doing on our side. And um, I've had some really good conversations uh, with some club coaches that have uh, come up to me even this recent weekend saying, you know, I really like how your kids play and why do you do this? Or why do you do that? And I, I explain my philosophies or rationale for, for what we do. And they're like, wow, I would have never thought of it that way. And uh, it's, it's good to hear. And so it's, uh, it's one of those things Yeah, we, I would say our team does things a lot differently or quite a bit differently than a lot of the other teams. And, and to me, the big reason is a lot of those other teams, they're focused on winning their, their club wants to win a provincial championship or national championship where, where for me, I'm focused on development. I'm trying to find ways to be better. So they will make a 16 U team, make a 17 U team, make an 18 U team. And 
potentially play for the Bobcats when they're 18 plus. And so, yeah, sure. I want to win like everybody else, but my focus is, is really on trying to make kids better volleyball players. And, um, I'd say it's a bit of a pet peeve of mine because you know, I, I look at some of the other young teams out there, 14, 15, and everybody's specializing. You know, they've got one or two setters on their roster and they're running a 5-1 and they have middles playing just middle. And uh, that's just not how I roll. I just don't believe in that. So on, on our team particularly this year, we have 11 kids. I have six setters. We're running a 6-3 and everybody plays every position. You know, we, we don't have middles or left sides or right sides. Everybody plays every position because I want the kids to be better volleyball players. I want them to understand the game from, from every positional aspect. And so when they get to be 17 or 18 or 19 and they need to start to specialize um, because now they're 6'4 instead of 5'8 or whatever the situation is, that they could step into any role and, and be better at it rather than, Oh, I've never done that before. I, I can't do that. And uh, so, like I say, my philosophy is probably different and certainly not for everybody, but it's, it's just what I believe in is, is the best for these kids in terms of their development and long-term opportunity. Yeah, I, I love what you're saying. And I think every time we get into the development versus winning, it gets tested and it gets tested by a lot of outside noise. So uh, I'm curious, was this the messaging at tryouts to the parents, to the athletes? Like, did everyone buy in right off the start? Does it help that a U sports coach of the year is the one coaching their child? And maybe that gets you instant credibility. Like, uh, I think everyone wants to win and sure it is important, but how are you convincing, you know, somebody who's probably going to be a libero or maybe a ball control left side that they're going to play middle this match and they're going to have a good experience doing it. Like uh, what are some advice you can give to coaches when like this theory or this philosophy gets tested and, and what are the answers other than, Oh, we're playing for development. Cause I'm sure some parents just shrug that off, right? You got to walk the walk and explain it a little bit more than that. Sometimes I bet. Yeah. And so the message I give our kind of coaching staff within the Brown and Volleyball Club is have that parent meeting and tell it like it is. There, there can't be a surprise down the road. You know, if, if you're going to coach to win, then that needs to be explained in the parent meeting. If you're going to coach to develop, you need to explain that in the parent meeting. And so you can't then flip-flop all of a sudden in a big tournament game or a provincial championship game or a national championship game. And so I, I told our parents day one, you know, we're, we're going to have, well, we did have 12 players, but one player broke his arm. So um, we're down to 11. I said, you know, we're, we're going to play everybody equally until we get into a situation where we have to win a game to advance to play more games. And then we will look to change the roster a little bit, but we're going to develop everybody to be a better volleyball player. I, I, I don't want to hear somebody say, oh, well, I'm here to make my kid a setter. Or I'm here to make my kid a left side. Uh, we're, we're here to make them a better volleyball player. The positional stuff will sort itself out down the road. And, you know, there's too many times I've seen that maybe the best player at the 16 and under national championships doesn't even play post-secondary volleyball because they never grow again or they never get physical and they were pinholed into a certain position and never got the opportunity to do something else. And, um, as I say, for, for me, I'm trying to think as global as I can. And, you know, we've talked about it as, as, uh, as coaches at a high level before, you know, what, why is it in Canada that sometimes we don't have the six, seven, six, eight setters like the Italy's? Well, because we tend to have our six, seven, six, eight kids plunked in the middle from the time they're 15 years old. And so, you know, to me, if, if we want to be uh, better in terms of developing our athletes, we need to think in a way that's more global and allows um, kids to become better volleyball players, not just a specific position. 
And are you meeting with the athletes? Like, let's say little Josh says he wants to be a setter, but you're, you're doing a great job as a coach. You're going to give me the opportunity to do it, but you're also going to have train everyone else who wants to be setter. I think you mentioned you have six on your team. Are, are you being honest with them saying, Hey, you know, our philosophy, you're going to get an opportunity. You're going to get reps in practice, but when it becomes down to a meaningful match in a tournament, like so-and-so and so-and-so are ahead of you and that's what we're going to do. So does that athlete clearly know what they have to do to you know, kind of win the spot and play the position they want? Or do you also kind of segue them a little bit and say, you know what, you're not going to set this match, but we need you to play right side or I guess that doesn't work in the, the six, three system. Maybe you're going to play middle and you can help us and do ABC. Like what are some of the conversations you're having with the athlete? Because uh, I, I get that, that, uh, specialization kind of limits athletes, but sometimes the athlete really wants to be a certain position, right? Yeah, for sure. And it's, it's having those conversations as a group or with certain individuals to, to prepare them, you know, for what's, what's ahead. And I think, yeah, maybe sometimes you do have to convince them a little bit. Yeah. I know you really want to be a setter, but right now we need you to do this. And, uh, I think it's an opportunity for once then to, to learn again and, and figure out a way that they can make themselves better. And then down the road, they can still have those opportunities in another position. And I think it's, uh, the older they get and the more experienced they get, you'll hope that they'll look back and go, wow, that made a lot of sense. This is why we did it. And now I see what Grant was talking about. Um, but I think that open, honest communication is probably the most important piece. So, so guys know where they're at. And just for our listeners who are kind of getting the pen and paper out, trying to figure out what a six, three is at its purest level. I believe it's a back row setter and you just set when you're in one and six. Is that fair? Or what is the system you're running? That is the exact system we're running. Yeah. I've seen it other ways where, where it might be a front row setter, but for, for us, uh, when, so our, our setters are alternated in the starting rotation. So setter, non-setter, setter, non-setter all the way around the horn. And when the setter is in position one, they set when that person is in position six, they set. Then once they get into position five, uh, they're just playing in position five and the new setter is now in position one. And, um, yeah. So to me, once again, we're giving six guys the opportunity to train at playing the role of setter. Whereas, you know, a lot of teams, if they're running a five, one or six, two, they might only have one, two or three guys training. And so just trying to, uh, give those kids the opportunity to, to, you know, experience that now. And as I say, they'll, they'll figure out their role when they get bigger and older. And, um, you just hope it makes them better because of the experience. And the non-setters in this rotation, are they switching between playing middle and outside depending on the rotation or are they, are they specialized for that specific set? Yeah. So once again, because I believe that they need to experience every position, whatever position they're in, in the front row, they stay. So when they're in position four, they're hitting left side. When they're in position three, they're hitting middle. When they're in position two, they're hitting right side. Um, but like I told them, there may be the odd situation where we might make a switch. You know, if, if one of the setters who's the smallest guy on the team at five, six is in position three and it's point twenty four twenty three we might switch that setter with the, the six foot player beside him on the outside. So we can have a middle, bigger middle blocker, but uh, it's not something we're doing every rotation. It's not something we're doing all the time. It would be very situational um, because once again, I want everybody to understand how to hit as on the left side, how to hit as a middle, how to hit as a right side, where to block, how to defend all those things. So that somewhere down the road, a coach says, Hey, I need you to play this. They can go, yeah, I can do that because I've experienced it already. I don't want them to say, Oh, well, I've never passed before, or I've never played this position before. And, um, I think it's just, uh, 
beneficial for them to have those experiences now to, to make them better down the road. Yeah, th- this is so cool. And I, I imagine our audience who is volleyball obsessed is probably nodding their heads, but uh, I've seen it so abused the other way where like you have what you think is an outside hitter, but they can't play the opposite pin. And it's like, how are you a left side and you can't hit a ball on the right side of the court? Like that's how specialized our game was getting through some coaches and some clubs. So it's so cool to hear you go this way. But uh, I imagine at some point you got to put on your university hat and say, uh, when do you phase this out? Because I think a setter does need to know how to penetrate from five and four and serve receive and kind of work those other rotations. So uh, I think you mentioned around 17 or 18 you would phase this out. But uh, in that tricky year of 16 you, uh, when they're play up in 17 you, and obviously the net goes up a little bit, like, are you still committed to this development thing? Or when would you start to maybe put kids in positions or start thinking uh, a little bit more long term down the road what they're going to do in volleyball? Yeah, I would think 16 or 17, depending upon the group, you know, their maturity, their experience. I think um, certainly by 17, when the net goes up, then then I think that's the game changer. Pretty hard to have, uh, you know, a five foot five outside, you know, middle blocker playing against some some 17 year olds that are six seven, six eight for sure. So once you're in that situation, if you want to stay competitive and you want to be realistic, then then you're going to have to do that. But I think uh, you know I'm. I'm not sure which age group I'll coach next year, but if I stayed with this age group and move up into 16U, I would probably pair it down to a 6'2 instead of a 6'3, um, just to focus on, um, you know, a little bit less kind of uh, development that way and allow kids the opportunity, like you say, to to experience volleyball at a, at a different level and have the setters penetrating from position five. And, you know, I'm still not convinced that running a five, one at 16 years is the ideal thing. Cause you're developing one less setter. And do we need 16 U kids running C balls? Well, maybe it, it can help, but, um, I think the more kids you can have involved and the more kids that can experience a high level, uh, the better off for everybody. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah, this is awesome. And I'm curious if you could let us in behind the curtain a little bit about what training looks like. Like, are you running similar drills that you would with your university squad because everybody's moving around? Are you doing like just a lot of wash drills and a lot of game sitch and trying to get everybody to play every position? Like uh, how many similarities are there between like your favorite drills you might do with the Bobcats versus club? And how are you making sure everybody gets trained in the the three or four different positions they're going to play? Yeah, for sure. Good question. Um, there, there are some similarities, but there's also some differences for sure. Um, I would say, uh, warm up activities, ball control activities are, are similar. Um, like even, even with our Bobcat team, we train everybody to do everything on a pretty regular basis. We, we, we do a drill or activity we call rotational pepper, um, where your team gets three contacts and when your team plays it over the net, everybody rotates. Um, so everybody plays all six positions. You just identify on a day who's setting. So maybe the person in two or maybe the person in one, however you want to do it. Uh, that's something we do with our BU guys on a almost daily basis, pretty regular basis. And that's something we do with, with our 15 U because once again, train them to do everything. Uh, but I, I would say after that, once we start into the bulk of practice, I'd say with our 15 U it's, it's a little more skill-based um, a little less team based, um, certainly compared to our BU team, our, our BU team is going to do a lot of, uh, six on six drills, working on maybe something specific, not, not necessarily just playing wash, but we're going to work on something specific. We try to do it in a six on six situation to make it as game-like as possible. Um, but we can't really do that with our 15U. 
one, we only have 11 players and two, they're all multi-sport athletes. I, except for maybe one or two of them. So I'd say on average, we're, we're lucky if we have eight players in a practice. And so for, for us to do six on six with, with our 15 news is pretty rare. Um, so we try to focus really on skill development. Yeah, I, I love that. I didn't think of that because I, I haven't coached club in a couple of years. But again, if you're going to be committed to athlete development and just being a good youth coach, do you ever get upset where somebody's like so-and-so, oh, sorry, coach, I got a hockey tournament or I got uh, basketball practice. Like, are you encouraging the athletes to do more? And you know that coming in because uh, in Ontario, I've heard some horror stories that if you're playing another sport, you don't get to play club for that team because they're in the gym at least three times a week and they're going to a tournament every other weekend, like uh, different demands for different clubs. But because you're so committed to development, does that mean sometimes you're going to have to be okay with, you know, six people at practice because there's a basketball tournament or something going on in high school sport? 100%. Yeah, I, uh, I'm a big believer in multi-sport athletes. I feel like they become better volleyball players down the road than, than kids that focus on just volleyball. I think there's a lot of wear and tear on the body. Um, if you're just playing volleyball 12 months of the year, um, I like kids to experience other coaches, other environments of, you know, competitiveness. I just think it makes them a more well-rounded athlete and, um, I'm, I'm a big, big fan of, of multi-sport athletes. So yeah, there's maybe the odd day you go, man, I wish we had 12 guys here today so we could do six on six, but oh, well, it's on to this next drill instead because we don't. And, um, yeah, I, I think we've maybe had our entire team at two or three practices this year. Um, so it's, it's one of those things we know going in, parents know going in that we support the multi-sport athletes. Um, it is what it is. And as I say, we're, we're not focused on driving our groups to be a national champion club player. Yeah, we would certainly love to win a national championship, but uh, we're, we're trying to make everybody better so that when they're 17, 18, and they start to go, huh, I think I need to decide one sport or two sports. We are hoping they're picking volleyball because they've had so many positive experiences and they've been allowed to develop while they were playing hockey or basketball or baseball or whatever it might be. And how, how long would you say approximately it's taken you to commit to this philosophy? Because I imagine through your own experience and your own education, you had a good head start, then add in conversations with maybe a Russ Paddock or a Dave Preston or a Benjo. Like, uh, I think it's so cool. But sometimes as a club coach, you just have to almost concede and say, you know what, that, that drill I thought would work really well. It's not working. Send them on a water break and bring them back and try something else. Right. So uh, have you ever had to kind of grin and bear it and say, man, I thought that would work better than it did like this philosophy or this strategy or this rotation. Like, uh, is there anything you can kind of show young coaches that it's not all awesome and it's not going to work the first time? Yeah, for sure. Uh, philosophically, it hasn't changed for me. Honestly, I started, um, what was called the Cougar Volleyball Club in Brandon in, in the early 2000s, which then merged into what's now the Brandon Volleyball Club. And at that time, uh, we told kids and parents, this is a volleyball club, but we want them playing high school basketball and hockey and whatever other sports they're involved in, mainly because that was the way to get the best athletes involved in our, our program. Like we, we don't have a big pond here with lots of fish in it waiting to to come play so to speak so we're we're trying to cast a wider net get more kids here to get better athletes here and to do that that's we needed to sell the idea that this was a club that sure we want to train you know certain days or certain opportunities but at the same time if you can't be here because of other sports we were in full support um so i haven't wavered on that but certainly in terms of drills and things that you're doing in practice you 
think you have a perfect practice plan or you have a certain driller activity that you think is going to work great and it you know falls on on the floor pretty quick and it's like wow i didn't see that coming and maybe it was the way i presented it as a coach or maybe the way uh, we demonstrated it, or maybe it was just that particular day. The, the kids' focus wasn't as as good as it was. Maybe they had a tough day at school, or whatever it might have been. Um, so, yeah, being able to adjust on the fly, I think, for any coach is pretty important in terms of their practice plan. And um, sometimes the best laid plans go astray, and and you need to throw it in the garbage and come up with a plan B. And uh, I think that's just what good coaches do: is they they learn to adjust on the fly and make things work for that particular moment. And just uh, one one story I wanted to bring up as you and I were talking before the show is uh, it it's just funny the the Paddock uh, Wilson family and how deep it goes where your your children are friends but I thought it was interesting that neither one attended Brandon University so I'm curious did you have to put on a different hat when recruiting was happening and be like well now I'm a father and I want what's best and they can make their own choice versus like why wouldn't I want to be a Bobcat? Like, and I know it's worked both ways in new sports where sometimes the athlete goes and plays for their parent and sometimes they go to a different school. But uh, I'm curious if you can let us in behind the scenes of your own experience of what, uh, what it was like when your son was picking his post-secondary de- destination. Yeah, for sure. Well, there, there's, I would say two sides to it. My thought process and his thought process. Um, but firstly, the, the big one was the academic side of things. Uh, Reese had wanted to be a police officer from the time he was about seven or eight years old. Um, and so academically, um, it made sense for him to pursue an opportunity in criminology. And Brown University doesn't offer a degree in criminology. And so, um, you know, that was the conversation that, that was in our house was, you know, he dearly would have loved to have been a Bobcat. He grew up being around the Bobcats since he was five years old with uh, Russ's boy, Max as well. You know, they tagged along to the gym and they were little gym rats and hung out with the Bobcats. And um, they both, I'm sure, um, dreamt of, of being a Bobcat. But um, academically for Reese, it, it, it didn't make sense. Uh, and so he had his opportunities um, start to come up. And in the end, his, his first choice was to go to College of the Rockies out in BC and play in the Pac West for Cisco Ferreira. And, you know, it, it was a great opportunity for him to uh, go away and learn to live on his own and um, was given a starting role right away. And after being a couple of years there, he, he did extremely well and was then uh, recruited by Nathan Bennett at Fraser Valley. And um, he wanted to play in U sports and, and that opportunity was now present and criminology is an option at Fraser Valley. And it just seemed to be a, a, a really good fit. And so he, uh, he ended up going there, but going back to my own thought process on it, you know, I, I knew physically and uh, from a compete standpoint, he, he could come into our program and help for sure. Um, but I did have some really good conversations with Larry McKay and uh, Brian Gavis at the time, who both coached their boys. Larry uh, coached Josh at Winnipeg and Brian had coached CJ at Sask. And they both thought that, you know, if if your son was uh, interested in going somewhere else, then maybe that wasn't a bad thing. That having the pressure of uh, playing together, living together, um, maybe isn't necessarily the greatest thing for the whole family. And that was something that it, it definitely crossed my mind. But as I say, in the end, it, it didn't really, um, 
you know, come to my side of the decision making just because we weren't going to have them come to BU just to play volleyball. You know, the part of the student athlete piece is being a student and making sure you're working on your academic side of things that are going to benefit you down the road. And so it just made sense for him to go elsewhere. And, um, you know, it's, it's worked out pretty well for him for sure, both on and off the court. And, um, now Russ's boy Max is out there and it's, uh, it's, his story is pretty incredible too. You know, Max was a high, high level hockey player. He was the Memorial cup MVP goaltender for the Regina Pats in 2017, um, and was pursuing hockey and, uh, you know, just decided he'd had enough of hockey was kind of tired of the grind of hockey. And, um, he started talking to Reese and said, Hey, maybe there's an opportunity for volleyball at Fraser Valley. And so, um, Max and, uh, Reese were training in the BU gym over the summer when they were home. And, uh, that's when they, they got in touch with uh, coach Bennett and yeah, he thought, well, it's worth a shot. You know, Russ was a pretty good volleyball player. Max is a pretty great athlete. So you never know. And sure enough, Max has gone out there and, uh, has his first year was this year, did extremely well, got, got on the court when, uh, their starting setter got hurt. And so he was out there running the show after being away from the sport for basically five years, which is a pretty incredible story. And with uh, those two guys out there being best friends, it's, uh, it's kind of gone full circle for them. So it's, uh, it's pretty cool to see that. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And thanks for sharing all the behind the scenes here. As I just look at the clock, I've taken up a lot of your time. We'll definitely have to get you back on because I'm sure there's lots more Brandon stories and lots more uh, development stories. But before we let you go today, I was hoping you could just share a funny or unique story where, you know, you, you've dedicated so much to our sport and given so much to it, but I bet you there's something uh, odd or funny that's happened along the way. So I was hoping you could share uh, an interesting story before we let you go. Yeah, well, I'm sure there's there's a few stories. I I guess the first one that, that comes to mind was really my first international experience on the road. Um, Russ and I uh, and and James Snedden were coaching the 2006 Team Canada youth team, um, and we were off to the Norseka Championships in the Dominican Republic. And I guess there's kind of two stories within this story. The the first one is we we got on the plane and flew to Santo of Domingo, um, landed, and we were told that we were probably staying about 10 to 15 minutes away from, from the airport in Santo Domingo, uh, where the tournament was to be held. And the next thing we know, we're, we're in this small bus and we're going down a highway that honestly looked like a golf cart in the jungle. Like it, I, we weren't sure where we're going. Nobody spoke English. Uh, and we literally drove past Santo Domingo and we're out in the country and driving and driving. We had no idea where we were. We had no idea where we were going. We drove for about an hour and a half, um, which turned out to be north or inland and, uh, got to a place and we're basically shown where to go sleep. And that was really it. So Russ was on his cell phone and back in those days, 2006, cell service wasn't the best. Uh, and he's trying to get hold of John Blanchard, who was working for Volleyball Canada at the time. He's like, hey, we just got dropped off what seems like in the middle of the jungle. Like, we, we don't know where we are. Um, as, as it turned out, we found out that uh, the tournament was moved, uh, but they didn't tell anybody from Volleyball Canada or didn't tell us. So we ended up in a small, um, basically, sports academy school in town of Biowana. Um, and as I say, we, we really had, we, we didn't know if we were, 
being driven away to be taken away or what was going on. And so it, it was a bit of a interesting moment. And to add to that, so we're, we're in this facility and trying to, you know, experience the, the tournament and long days and the heat. And it was, it was pretty incredible. And at the end of the night decide, you know, need to find a place to go for a refreshment while well, we're, we're in basically an enclosed, um, campus. Um, and anytime you went to walk anywhere or leave, there would be a military person that would kind of join you on the walk because they wanted to make sure you stayed safe. So we found this little cantina place on the corner of a street just outside the gates. And so we would walk out there and um, people at this little cantina would pull out a couple of lawn chairs for us and crack a soda and sit on the street and, and have a refreshment. And the military guy would just wait for us. And however long we were there, he would then usher us back to, to the campus. And, uh, the one night he was, uh, ushering us back to campus and it was fairly late. It would have been after midnight. So it was dark. All of a sudden, uh, we were near the front of the gates and uh, a car came absolutely peeling up towards us at a very, very high rate of speed. And this military guy had his gun drawn and was yelling in his native tongue very quickly. And, before we knew it, we looked around. There was probably 10 to 15 other military guys that jumped out from behind trees or buildings, wherever they were, with their guns drawn, yelling, screaming. And our hearts were in our throats. We really had no clue what was going on. Uh, as it turned out, it was just somebody from the Dominican Volleyball Federation was was coming back to the campus. And I don't know if they were late for something or whatever, but these guys were in fear that we were going to be kidnapped or something. And, and the three of us, Russ and Jim and myself were, as I say, our hearts were in our throats and we had no idea that all these military guys were around us. We just knew the one was escorting us and uh, turned out there were several more in the area kind of uh, keeping an eye out. So yeah, it was, uh, it was an interesting experience. The, the food and the heat and the military and just the, the whole thing. I say that was my first real true international experience and uh, it was a pretty big eye opener no way like what a unique experience that volleyball brought you but like yeah you're you're saying this in a very calm voice or i'm not sure how i would have reacted or responded but uh i'm glad you were to take it in and look back positively now where i would have just been in a blender of emotions i think in the lead in there <laughs> yeah it was uh, it was quite the experience for sure well, this has been so great to have you on the show, Grant, and just hear about your stories and learn all about uh, your journey, but also the program's journey. So I just want to say thanks for sharing all that you did. I definitely learned a lot, and hopefully the listeners will get a kick out of this one, too. Yeah, well, thanks so much for having me. It's uh, it's an honor to be here. I enjoy listening to your podcasts. And uh, as I say, I don't know how entertaining I was or educational I was, but uh, I certainly enjoyed it. And uh, hopefully you and a few listeners did, too.